some of us are more inclined towards action and doing and protest and activity we're sort of learning aren't we that we can't just do that because of burnout for one thing the balance and the other word i'd use there is that it's about discernment the contemplative heart let's say it's about coming to those eyes to see and knowing ourselves and bringing our vulnerabilities in rather than out in order to serve more truly. Christopher Morris is head of the Department of Pastoral and Spiritual Studies and lecturer in spirituality at Catholic Theological College in Melbourne, Australia. He's also a spiritual director and has been a religious education leader in Catholic education. Much of his scholarship is focused on the notion of wisdom knowing and practical ways to cultivate wholeness. In his recent work, these interests have him investigating what this may mean for survivors of trauma, what Chris calls Christ in the torn places, which we discussed today. I'm Matthew Wickman of the BYU Faith and Imagination Institute. Chris Morris, my friends, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Matt. It's wonderful to be here. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it. So, you know, so we met this past summer uh, in Adelaide, Australia, at an international conference of the Society for the Study of Christian Spirituality. But, but I first became acquainted with your work through an essay you published in 2021 in Spiritus, which is uh, the flagship journal of that society. And this essay you wrote, it's a beautiful essay on transformation, a subject which is widely recognized as one of the hallmarks of spiritual experience. It's transformative on us. I, I'll ask you at the outset here, what led you to the interest the academic interest in transformation? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And it, I, it's, I was thinking it's like a feel for transformation for me. That's because I can't really identify how it emerged. It's so has been the story of my life in one sense to be searching. Um, and transformation was a natural environment for that. Um, and it's changed. And I think what you mentioned, the academic area that, you know, um, being brought up in a in the Catholic tradition and reading in that tradition and then studying the tradition, I was always asking, how does that translate into religious education where we're teaching young people and then in the academic area? and spirituality was the fit for that, which has it as part of its method. <clears throat> so I might just say that it's changed as a term. It, you know, probably for me was something about change and it is, there's trans, there's change, there's growth, etc. And that growth point has become the big area for me that holds our experience. So I would look at it as holding more of our experience, which is somewhat different to the desire to change things too quickly. Mm. That's really interesting, Chris. I, I, that that really um, kind of uh, provokes me uh, in, a, in a in a good way. In curiosity, the capacity to sort of sit with things um, without working to change them too rapidly. It's a it's it, it's a space that accommodates others present, those who one sits and works with, the presence of God, um, 
uh, as well being there. Uh, and it, it, that's a really, um, I think, large-minded way to engage transformation, but it also removes some control, right, from the one studying it, teaching it, uh, which also requires a discipline of and, and a capacity to sort of sit with things that one can't micromanage. Yes, and you mentioned the word space, and that would be something really central to all this, holding a space, opening a space. I happen to teach in the area of, um, you know, helping people to become teachers of prayer and meditation, and more and more we're about how do we hold a space for people, which, and that's kind of an inclusive space, that's an open space for the for the difference there in others for god as you said and also ourselves Hmm. that there's so much and we're learning more and more about what are the places within us that are poor or the places within us that are sort of exiled it's actually bringing that in in ways into this space that then opens the space and that's kind of paradoxical and part of us resists but that's very much um how i begin to see this as that opening that space okay this is going to take us um eventually to a discussion of some of your recent work on trauma which is a classic case right where these places in ourselves this is very poetic what you said that are exiled uh you know become uh, hugely important to the people that we become, uh, right, in our own transformation, ongoing transformation. As a lead into that discussion, let me ask you a couple uh, um, questions about the article in Spiritus about transformation, right? I, one thing I found compelling in the article was your focus on transformation as a process and a method, right? And not just as some kind of instantaneous and inexplicable phenomenon that happens to us and you know, you, you, what you just do is you discuss transformation related to the what's called the wisdom approach uh, of the Benedictine monk Bruno Barnhart. Um, I guess I'd ask you this: How did you learn about Barnhart, and and were you drawn to him because he's doing work that's innovative, or is it more that he was kind of synthesizing long-held wisdom concerning transformation? Yeah, um, Bruno Barnhart was a a Kamal de Lee's Benedictine monk. So in the Catholic tradition, they have this monastic tradition. He's a Benedictine in Big Sur in California. So he's in a kind of sitting on the side of the Pacific there. I met him in 2002. Um, and I'm what's called an oblate Benedictine. So I'm a lay person, but I'm connected to that monastery. So he's sitting there looking out over the Pacific from the, the western tip, if you like, looking out over to the east and all of that interaction of eastern traditions coming over to the west etc both ways Um, and even though in a way it's quite a enclosed order he has this breadth of vision at the center of it is this wisdom wisdom sapientia in the latin is to taste and it sort of reaches back very much to the beginning of the tradition. I know your poetic sensibilities, Matt. That's his, he was very into poetry too, because he saw in the Christian tradition that it starts out as poetry. A monk would say the scripture is poetic first. It 
the layers of meaning there and it was read that way it was prayed that way so he he reached back to that beginning and he is summarizing thomas merton comes to mind they they reach back to the sources and the way that things are looked at prayerfully lexio divina is divine reading in the benedictine tradition to read but also to respond with at the different layers of ourselves that's participatory knowing that wisdom knowing but then they sort of turn their gaze forward and look out and it's i'm not sure if we some of us might have heard of someone like Teilhard de chardin he's a kind of scientist a jesuit who engaged with evolution a kind of prophetic figure who said we need to bring our tradition in touch with evolution what does it mean in the 20th century and bruno did that he looked back and forward at once which is wisdom knowing isn't it you know to try and do the, the large spaces and there's innovation there as well as tradition there i'd put it that way that's really great. You know where I learned about Teilhard de Chardin? It's, this is interesting, actually. I was, I was a missionary from my church, um, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, in France. Uh, and, uh, you know, we don't talk in, in my religious, I mean, in a Sunday school class, much about people like Teilhard de Chardin, but, but, but the, the, the mission leader's wife was familiar with his work and said to me sometimes, you should look at this book uh, in English translated, the divine milieu, the milieu divin, you know, and 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 so I got kind of turned on to Teilhard de Chardin as, as a missionary from my church in France, which, and and wow. and, and and just a a really provocative thinker. I really really mm. like uh, so much of what uh, de Chardin uh, writes. Can I ask you a bit about participatory knowing? It's a phrase you mentioned here, and the the sapientia, the taste and wisdom. I love how you mention that. Um, I'm curious what that means uh, relative to God, for example, right? So I come from a tradition, a religious tradition, that embraces our capacity to build a relationship with God. So I believe in a participatory knowledge of God being possible. Um, at the same time, you know, God is obviously a different being from people we encounter in everyday sense, you know, sitting here with Sophie or a producer in this room or talking to you, you're talking to me. Um, so I guess I'm wondering this, is the process of participatory knowing, as either Barnard understood it or the, as you understand it, fundamentally different vis-a-vis -vis God than it is other people, or is it surprisingly similar? Yeah, wonderful question. I, I'd come back to the wisdom there, which is this fascinating interplay space. And the wisdom of the Jewish tradition, it's sort of God it's also God communicating into the world mm. and as though we can become wise, we can participate in this wisdom that's the the kind of life force, if you like. Um, though she is but one, she can do all things is from the wisdom of the wisdom text. Though she is but one, she can do all things. You're hearing the oneness and the diversity together. So how do we... It resists our understanding, firstly. It, it won't let us say too much. And yet, of course, we do. Um, so God is relationship, we might start with, from a Trinitarian point of view. And so all relationship is God in one sense. And 
that sacramental sort of understanding that a Catholic might bring. You mentioned it, I think, yourself too. Um, you know, that it's an outward sign of an inward reality, that the relationships, the depth of relationships happen in God and of God. So there is this wonderful connections. A theologian would answer probably more fine-tuned, but I love what you say. Is it surprisingly similar? Hmm. Yes. Um, and I could say a little bit more about how Bruno sort of um, marks out that territory, if that's helpful. If you would, yeah, I'd appreciate that. Well, just his interest, so we've got the wisdom knowing, and the heart of that would be Jesus as the wisdom of God, okay? And that's that paradox, that mystery of the crosses at the centre of that, and it enables, it's a participatory event that then um, flows out and is available, let's put it that way. Within that, he sort of has a contemplative turn, a turn to the depths, and this is where the tradition would speak of a such a deep participation in God, a oneness in God, and that would be the sort of mystical tradition, so a contemplative turn, but on the other side is a kind of creative freedom turn, mm. and he sort of looks at Western history a bit here, I won't go into that, but that idea that the human becomes an agent in the world. So Christ said, you'll find freedom and so forth. So to discover our freedom and that creative freedom, especially, which is the poetic sensibility, isn't it? That where um, we are able to bring something new into the world somehow. That's a, a great gift that's given to the human person. So you can sort of hear that oneness, but on the other side, this sort of creative gift that evolves, and there's Teilhard talking about it in the cosmic scene, but also through history, there's a creative movement despite the many, many challenges. We do see evolution there. And a final sort of attempt to bring that together today as a, what would you say, a communion, a, a global turn, a turn to justice that must finish, it must be brought to bear on that. And that's wisdom knowing in a holistic way in God with each other. It's a very compelling, uh, large-minded vision. Uh, that really is, and, and, and beautifully expressed, Chris. Uh, thank you very much. Let me ask you, you mentioned this turn toward justice. I've got a question about this I wanted to ask you. Um, you mentioned uh, in your article, this is the last question I'll ask you about this before we turn to the trauma, but this is an important point, and I want to come to this here, that there are four practices of the wisdom approach to cultivate what you call the transformative orientation of the researcher. And uh, these involve things like engaging with the breath as a centering exercise and, and allowing oneself to be silent, so as to appreciate the depth and mystery of what one is seeking to engage, and then taking this participatory attitude. And finally, you know, focusing on power issues that highlight matters of social justice. And that leads me to this question um, about the relationship between silence and social justice, the two parts there of that, of that larger composite of, of, um, of, of practices that are part of the wisdom approach. You know, um, I asked this about silence and social justice because we often associate silence with practices of prayer, meditation, contemplation, etc. Whereas social justice is often sought in very public spaces, right? Where one must be 
um, loud, to bring attention to key issues, uh, where one engages directly in these participatory forms of action, like marches and rallies and the kind. I'm curious how you understand the connection, if there's a direct one or it's only indirect, between, on the one hand, silence, on the other hand, uh, the, the, the louder spaces of social justice. Yes. And I might just refer back to that space that we were mentioning, a kind of opening the space out with others and within ourselves. Mm -hmm. And this is where we might talk about the contemplative active that we're sort of more aware of today, that we all have a contemplative side. We all need very much to hold the mystery of the human person in, just in some way. And I'd call that the silence. Uh, Simone Weil said, silence is not the absence of, it's just it's simply not the absence. It's it's actually something positive. It's It's got a force about it. So it's not as though we go to silence just then to get back to our activities. This is engaging in the very mystery, the dynamism that's beyond words. And we need to acknowledge that that's who we are too. And then it, we bring that into our lives somehow. And I, I just would really, I think Thomas Merton is a great icon of this for those who may know him because he turned to the contemplative as if that was all in the beginning of his life. And some of us are that way inclined. I think if I can be contemplative, that's it. But he became, as he learned in himself and looked at the world, he was compelled urgently to speak to the issues of the world. That's one way. Some of us are more inclined towards action and doing and protest and activity. We're sort of learning, aren't we, that we can't just do that because of burnout for one thing the balance and the other word i'd use there is that it's about discernment oh, yeah. so we all are called to discerning and i the contemplative heart let's say it's about coming to those eyes to see and knowing ourselves and bringing our vulnerabilities in rather than out in order to serve more truly. That's a great, great uh, explanation of how those things connect, Chris. That's really great. I, I love the examples you um, invoked of Simone Weil on the one hand on silence and Thomas Merton, right, who really brought together sort of the contemplative and the active together. That's it, a great, great example. So I guess maybe I, I'll turn here to a practical example, um, which is uh, your thinking and work on trauma. Um, you know, in preparation for this, you very kindly sent me a couple of articles I might consider. Uh, one of them is by um, the scholar Judith Herman, who's an American psychiatrist and a recognized authority on trauma. And I'm wondering, you know, how you would uh, explain or describe the role of the wisdom approach vis-a-vis -vis trauma. Um, and, and in particular, because you've been talking about, I mean, really articulately, um, the, the wisdom approach relative to sort of action. Um, what part, though, does uh, the wisdom approach play alongside, say, clinical treatment of trauma? Yes. 
here I would just briefly want to say about that participatory knowing of the wisdom approach that it's centered in the cross, the mystery of the cross, you know, the Paschal mystery. So that's where it's led me, and I'm sure it's my own personal history too, that it is an event of participation that is weighed to the poor, isn't it? It's it's weighed to being in the places of trauma, in the torn places. So that's the participatory knowing can't skate over that in the Christian sense because this is where words like transformation we need to be careful of today in a trauma context because trauma is un, 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 something that's unbearable. It's overwhelming. So how does a wisdom approach speak to something overwhelming? It could almost be a trigger that I'm so far from that. So this is where the wisdom of the cross comes in theologically, but also practically. Right. So the first you know, you mentioned the clinical side. Well, what Judith talks about is the absolute fundamental need for a trauma survivor to be empowered. Trauma is an abuse of power. So to be empowered somehow, and I would then turn to the wisdom knowing in that Christian context as empowering firstly, it, it, it must speak to those wounded places within a person. Okay, this is this is um, what you say about about the trauma being unbearable, and about transformation being therefore a really delicate topic uh, relative to to that is um, I think that that suggests a lot of um, wisdom. If I can use that term again, you know, in in, in your case. But also some experience here in, in talking with people, working with people, uh, you know, who have experienced trauma of some kind or other. And this leads me to this question. You know, in that article by Judith Herman, um, she discusses there how trauma is contagious, right? It may be transmitted by, by the survivor to members of her family or to friends or even to therapists uh, who are assisting in the work of recovery. I'm wondering uh, about those then who provide pastoral care. Right, not the therapist, but others who were there and working, helping someone work through things. I'm wondering whether you've worked closely enough with a trauma survivor to experience some of that trauma secondarily yourself, and whether what you've seen about the wisdom of the cross, which has both, as you say, a theological and a practical side, also has a personal side for you in those kinds of situations. Yes, and this is experience in spiritual direction. I've had experience and also education in this area. Um, my first thought on that is that we need to do this in a community way. So our communities more and more need to be trauma-informed. It, it is happening, um, but I think in a spirituality and or religious area, it becomes essential it not as a another kind of thing some people are doing but that all of us because as Herman discovered it used to be said trauma was sort of something unusual in the human experience 
the big change is now that it is part of the human experience and that it, if not personally, there's collective and also just what we see. We were discussing some of the enormous conflicts right now. That's right. There's trauma. So how do we as communities sit with this? So if we're even as lecturers or pastoral carers, it needs to we need to be cared for in communities firstly and then theologically and practically our tradition the lens of this opens resources from our tradition to actually lean into and learn and pray together with and those kinds of things Okay, this takes me right this to this 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 point you're making is a very good point, and it 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 it, it evokes me the question about these communities, and I, I, this question I have is about religious communities in particular. Um, you know, Herman explains um, you know one of the elements for recovering from trauma is taking possession of one's own story, right? Something has happened to one, someone's taken something, or one's been injured, wounded in a way that one could not control. So reestablishing control involves control over the story about who one is, uh, what one's been through, what how that is has informed who we're, who we're becoming. Um, and for some people, that story involves trauma that comes from some facet of their religious life, you know, some suffering they've endured in a community. Um, uh, it could be a case of abuse, could be a feeling of exclusion, it could be a difficult childhood and religious home, it could be many things like this. Which, here's my question. As a religious person yourself, um, how do you at once affirm a trauma survivor's story when, when religious pain is part of their story while you hold sacred your own religious faith? How do you kind of work with those two stories, right, as survivors and your own at once? Yeah, and I mention again this, this preferential option for the poor that that principle that maybe we've heard of it's part of the social teachings to me that is the kind of wisdom principle of the christian tradition that it we we think of jesus here stretching he stretches out to heal and that word stretch thinking of the cross too is of enormous significance um wisdom knowing attention or from tendere the tendon is to stretch so as i've journeyed along here it's through the sort of engaging with these trauma studies to see they're enacting something of the incarnation that's stretching into experience so the story of my own spirituality seems to more and more speak to this a survivor and therefore to sort of participate in my religious tradition more with the eyes of yes we are damaged too and our sort of gift can be to to be more holding of that to hear the stories how do we hear those stories and bring this tendere to it, tenderness to it, is somehow our calling, I would have to say. 
Yeah, no, that that's really lovely. I, you know, and you mentioned this. I mean, that, that's a, that, the idea about this tendere, this stretching, um, you know, personified, exemplified by Christ. Um, it's in, it's it's an interesting kind of a paradox, right? I mean, it's in the sense that uh, you know, Christ is at the head of the church on the one hand. On the other hand, nobody would better understand the lives of those who have nothing to do with the church than would Jesus, we would say, right? Um, so that, 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 that Christ is uniquely able, right, both to um, uh, you know, become the, the, the lodestar, the north star for a religious community, a Christian community on the one hand. But on the other hand, uh, no one would be more comfortable uh, listening to the story of somebody who'd been wounded by precisely that kind of community. Um, yes. Which I, which is, is a reminder, it's a sobering reminder, right, to anybody, I think, who becomes or is, is, is tempted to be judgmental of those uh, who have a difficult time um, with a religious community, right? It's a reminder to religions, uh, to religious communities, uh, to, to, to be respectful of those uh, who, who fall outside the fold, um, who leave the fold. Yes. Um, um, I, I, as part of that question, I guess, let me ask you this um, about religious communities. Now, you sent me a second piece um, to consider by a woman named uh, Karen O'Donnell who talks about Eucharist and trauma. And she talks about how religious practice, um, especially the Eucharist or in what my tradition we call the sacrament, um, can be a source of healing, um, but also mm -hmm. for some people a source of trauma. And the yes. trauma may derive from the ways a religion has deployed its power at a social level, you know, or how some uh, indi individuals feel excluded from full participation in their religion, or, you know, or even, she says, how an emphasis on the biblical story of, of Christ's suffering can be triggering for those who themselves have suffered right in in violent ways that way but as she also points out religions can also be tremendously healing for people uh, they can connect people to god and others in ways that are deeply restorative and i guess in your experience when religion works best as an instrument of healing from trauma what exactly is it doing and and mm. and in what it does well does it operate uniquely well, or does it operate well along with other things that also operate uniquely well? Yeah, it's a wonderful question, isn't it? And we've sort of covered a bit of about the sensitivity today. It seems to me that that's the space, isn't it? The sensitive space we are in. And to uh, our first sort of movement, shall I say, is into that sensitivity that it isn't just neutral, a Eucharist, for example. Wow, I'm beginning to understand that this could be triggering. Just that thought itself is something that I sense we haven't thought, you know, too much about how, how, how do we engage in the practice, the lit liturgical practice, whatever we may call that, um, the Eucharist can be triggering and it can be healing because in it organically it is healing, I would say. It comes from the place of healing and that's a question of how it's done. So just that sensitivity, religion is doing its job when it naturally is sensitive, it's naturally tender again, that's its first movement. Um, and that it's that preferential option for the poor, how do we keep that central? Is it unique? 
well, here again, I, I come back to this event of, of wisdom in Christ that flo that overflows, that comes from a place of standing in trauma and somehow not sending it back, which we naturally want to do to be trauma and then to send it back, but to somehow stand with the victim and open a new story. And that new story is the story of love ultimately. You know, I was having a conversation with somebody close to me a couple of years ago who had left um, my uh, religious community and was offended in many ways by what the church uh, stood for on some things and offended that I would be part of the church and offended that I wasn't leaving the church <laughs> and and what yes, I you yes. know which is a familiar thing I mean you talk about the trauma that all people feel these days whether you can be the most devout believer uh, and and and, and the, 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 the most at home in your faith but there is a secondary trauma from being around people who have been hurt by religion and other things too I mean nobody escapes trauma and as you as you pointed out one thing I told this person um, was, you know, I, 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 I understand what you're telling me about your pain. I, I, not that I've lived your pain exactly, but I understand that you feel it, A, and why you would, why you would feel it. I said, but you know, mm -hmm. I, I feel better able to, um, to love you by remaining part of my own faith tradition than I feel mm -hmm. I could if I left it, in part because within it, I, I felt able to be nourished for me spiritually by Christ in ways that allow me to venture more easily and more powerfully, more impactfully outside the space of my religion, that my religion gives me the power to, to move spiritually in ways that I might not be able to if I lost faith altogether. Yeah, and in the tension of that, isn't it, mm -hmm. that we're sort of submitting to the tension that our institutions now have been challenged so greatly and are being and we to see the shadow side of all institution and yet to stay and to submit to that to the um i i can't help but go back to simone Vey and her her tension her her focus on attention to to attend to therefore you know where religion goes when it's we're worried is into black and white too quickly that that's a sign they say of kind of i'm in too much stress if i've moved into black and white thinking you know yeah so you know the simone wants us to say oh, hang in with the depth here and that seems to me a requirement of our time to be able to hold another person's experience and yet maintain our own um, wisdom, our own story, and but also somehow to penetrate deeper because there's resources there that we can't even imagine by doing that and become for others in whatever small way we can. Yeah, that's lovely. Um, I also love you mentioned Simone Veil on attention, uh, which has the same root, tendere. <laughs> there we yeah. are again, Chris, isn't that right? Um, let me ask you a couple more questions here for you. I love this conversation, and, and it, you're, you're a very um, uh, 
uh, large-minded but also large-souled person. And I, I really enjoy these conversations very much, Chris. So I, I'm wondering what your what your work on trauma, or as you call it, I think really poetically, Christ in the torn places. If you summarize it, what has your work on trauma specifically enabled you to understand? And what do you know today as a function of this work on trauma that maybe you might not have understood the same way before you began working on this subject? Yeah, it would be, it's a personal side to this. Um, I, as I look back, there was a desire somehow to change too easily to want to become something else mm. and but the process of bearing they call it the capacity to bear our human experience firstly and to bear a child they say to give birth to something metaphorically here that's where birthing happens to bear fruit and they say a sort of we're moving healthily to use such a word as we bear our life and for me it's been the trauma studies that have said how we've had to respond to things in our past i've often easily judged as as if they're a dysfunction when actually they were a protective function hmm. and our spirituality can sometimes look at in my case true self to false self now there's a truth in these things but they need to be handled in a much more sensitive way because it's holding the whole I, i'm thinking of bessel van der kolk now his work that's influenced me greatly yeah the body you know, keeps trauma, the score yeah the body keeps the and the body does keep the score as he says we're responding from other places in ourselves and what it needs is he says compassion that's the flow of the su to suffer with and i'm thinking of christ again now central to this without that we can't as he says sort of move from stuckness to a flowing life think of the flowing all the time of the flowing waters the the growth of the agricultural images all of these things to move to be dynamic yet it is the whole as well so that's what it's done it's somehow given a language to the very process of transformation but here i'd say of growth into wholeness mm -hmm. which includes and must our vulnerability okay that's lovely so let me ask you one last question then um with that as a a backdrop if you thought that maybe you've come to a, a fuller sense of that over the past, say, 10 years, um, if you were to think down the road another 10 years, this is a, a speculative question, I understand that. I mean, no one can know exactly. But what do you hope uh, to see from the work you're doing or the person you're becoming, you know, um, person you hope to become 10 years from now? Uh, how, what would you like to be able to say these next 10 years bring you in your understanding or in the person you've become yeah i would i'd hope for a growing compassion for myself and for others um and that 
has a rich term, the compassion and the flow of that, the sort of oil is what it derives from too. It's a, it's a, it's a very rich and layered place that that could be discovered. Um, and from that, I, I, I want to be able to trust more and in that invite others to trust more in, in, you know, for our tra traditions, but that there are possibilities here to trust more, to connect more, and also to challenge more. Something of those three, to challenge some of the, the structures that are there. May it be so. Uh, yeah, may, and, and, and the thought of trusting more in a world where it's so easy to distrust, I think, is a that suggests a capacity to sit in torn places. If you can trust more in a world like this one, right, then you've developed some real resources to sit uh, with that and, and, and also then maybe to challenge as a function of what you become. Chris, this has uh, been a delight. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and uh, all best to you. Blessings to you. Thank you, Matt. I've enjoyed it immensely and appreciate your work and what you're doing so very much. Thank you for your kindness and uh, just, just generosity with your work. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith and Imagination podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the Faith and Imagination Institute, the BYU Humanities Center, and the College of Humanities at Brigham Young University, is produced and edited by Sophia Snyder. The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Wickman and is performed by Nicholas Phillips on Albany Records. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. And if you're interested in other episodes, check out our website at humanitycenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>